Welcome to the Ocrest podcast channel. Ocrest School in Vienna, Virginia challenges girls in grades 6 to 12 to develop character, faith, and leadership potential to thrive in college and throughout their lives. In this podcast, Dr. Anna Samuel, academic director of the pro-marriage organization Canavox, speaks about talking to our kids about identity. She provides insights into some key parenting principles to uplift family life and explores how to form our children in their identity and help our children have a true sense of self-worth. So I'd like to start with a story. It's a story about a young girl who participated in our Canavox reading groups. She was a sixth grader when this happened. She was sitting in her public school classroom one day waiting for class to begin. And kids were still trickling into this classroom. And um, suddenly an eighth grade girl walked in with a roll of a thousand rainbow stickers. And the eighth grader walked up to the first kid in the first row, and she went up and said, are you an LGBTQ ally? And the kid just went, yeah. And so she peeled off her rainbow sticker and put it on his shirt. And then she went to the next row and asked the next kid, are you an LGBTQ ally? And one by one, she proceeded to go through all the kids. And as she went around, the answers got more creative. One of them said it in Spanish, that I'm an LGBTQ ally. Another one jumped up and did a little dance. And she was getting more and more nervous. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had been a sixth grader in that classroom at that age, I would have probably been like, bathroom, I've got to go to the bathroom now. But this girl just sat there, and luckily, she was sitting right next to her best friend. And she looked over at her friend, and without exchanging a word, they just looked at each other with understanding and waited for the activist to get to them. So she finally gets to them, and she asks her friend first, are you an LGBTQ ally? And the girl just said, no, because I believe what the Bible says. And just aghast at this, the activist turned to our young protagonist and said, do you agree with that, or are you an LGBTQ ally? And the little girl just looked her in the eyes and said, I'm an ally of people, not their sexual choices. And at that, some other kids in the class went, ooh, and there was like a commotion. And the teacher snapped out of her reverie, whatever she was doing. And she jumped up and she said, oh, no, 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 this is not the right way to promote your club. Please leave, 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 leave. And so finally she left, right, after she'd already been around the whole classroom. So there's so many things that we could talk about that story, right? We could talk about just the way in which our children today are being asked to give their opinions about other people's sexual behaviors. We could talk about the way in which adults are kind of asleep at the wheel at so many schools and institutions around our country. We could talk about the power of one person's courageous resistance, especially when it's done with kindness and intelligence. But the issue that we want to talk about tonight is the issue of identity, because this girl was asked really about her identity. Did she identify with the LGBTQ movement? And the question is, what conversations went on in that household so that our young heroine could rise up to the moment when it finally came, right? Because those acts of courage don't just happen spontaneously. There were years and years of conversations that went on in her home because her mother is one of the Canavox Saint leaders, and so she was already, in a sense, being prepared for that moment. So tonight, I'm going to share with you some of the conversational tips that the parents of that household undertook to prepare their daughter to be so courageous in that moment. 
So I'd like to really um, begin, where's the clicker? Oh, here it is. Um, by noting that in philosophy, okay, in philosophy, ground zero for all ethical thought is really the nature of the human person, right? So depending on how you define the human person, it's going to have a ripple effect on the rest of your ethics and your political theory and your life, right? So if you stand with Marx that man is a purely material thing and there's no spirit and that his identity is all based on economic relationships, then you are going to be more likely to subscribe to an ethics that encourages material redistributions and utilitarianism. Or if you stand with Freud that man is just a bundle of sexual desires, you're going to believe more easily that happiness consists in the erotic life, right? And if you stand with the natural law tradition that man is both spiritual and material, both body and soul, right? You're going to have a different conception, like Aristotle, of what the good life entails, right? Virtue, right? Full human flourishing. So this issue, really, about what the human person is, is, is central to any kind of undertaking about ethics. And it comes very naturally to adolescence, all right? Adolescence is the time when teenagers ask themselves, who am I and where do I belong? Those of us who grew up in the 1980s and the 1990s, right, are so aware of so many coming-of-age movies where teenagers were exploring these questions of, am I a goth, am I a jock, am I a nerd? Like, what group do I belong in? How should I dress to reflect my identity, right? All of these issues are very normal for middle school and especially high school, all right? So we're familiar with them. Adolescents today are engaging in, about, in these questions at a much deeper existential level, all right? And I would say a much riskier existential level, right? Because we, although we, we asked these questions and there were drugs available to us and racy movies and maybe inappropriate magazines, adolescents today have a whole new level of drug, whole new medicines available to them, hormones, surgeries, high-speed internet providing new levels of pornography, the kind of damage that an adolescent could do, I don't have to tell you, is much greater than what we could do to ourselves when we were growing up. So even though it's been, always been important for parents to help their children through the adolescent years, it's really vital today. We really can't sit it out because so much is at stake. So what's happened really is that the retreat from Christianity has also caused this erosion of natural law philosophy, okay? We have now in the West, in our countries like ours, this vacuum that has been left behind. And so a lot of people were having an identity crisis, okay, probably the greatest identity crisis in human history. And because the retreat from Christianity has left a vacuum, we now have dangerous ideologies that are trying to fill in the gaps, all right? So people are much more likely to believe, like critical race theory, that you are your race, or gender ideology, that you are your sexual feelings, or social media, you are what other people say you are, all right? So it's really, um, it's the best time for us to recapture and reframe this national conversation, this international conversation about what we are. It's a great opportunity for us to dig back into the natural law tradition and present it again to the world because we need to, right? So it's a great opportunity and I'm so glad we can rise up to the challenge because we have the tools. So to cut to the chase, I'm going to argue tonight that there are basically six levels of human identity that I think are really vital for us to understand, right? The first level is our human 
identity, all right, our human nature. Second level is our sexual nature, okay, whether we're male or female. Okay. Third level, our familial identity, okay, our ancestry, our genetic code, etc. Fourth is our religious identity, right? Whether whatever religious values we have are going to leave an imprint on our identity. A relational identity, okay, whether we're married or we're single, all right? That also gives us an identity, all right? And our professional or occupational identity. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna briefly explain what all these are, and then I'm gonna zoom in a little bit on the sexual identity level since that's what everybody's interested in today, okay? And hopefully all in about 30 minutes. So let's see, start your clocks, all right? So, all right, so let's start with human nature, okay? So for 2,000 years, we've heard from philosophy, right? That man is a rational animal. Right? So what does that mean in a nutshell? Because those two words really contain the essence of what we are. Okay? So we are both reasonable spiritual creatures and also animal, material. Okay? We are both things together. All right? So we are mammals, first of all. Right? We, as mammals, we reproduce sexually. We have sense perceptions. We have feelings. We're social. All right? So just like the animals, we, we share certain capacities and instincts and functions, and it's important for our children to understand that we have a partly an animal nature, all right? But the thing that makes us different from the animals, right, is that we have a rational capacity, an intellect. So we can abstract from merely material things and create concepts, all right? Transcend matter and enter into a spiritual domain. We have free will, we can be uncaused causes, right? And we are a body-soul unity, okay? I know I'm abbreviating this a lot, but it's important when you're talking to your kids, whether it's about the family pet or whether you're looking out the window and looking at the squirrel, it's great to just reflect with them, you know? You know the squirrel? You know how the squirrel is different from us? You know, just start talking, lean into these teachable moments, say, huh, mom, how's the squirrel different? Well, the squirrel doesn't look at the sunset and say, wow, look how beautiful that is. I wonder what caused that. I wonder what's out beyond the cosmos. The squirrels can't ask those big questions, but we humans can, right? Or your dog Fido, you know, Fido, if it's a Friday in Lent, Fido is not gonna abstain from meat if he's hungry, right? <laughs> Fido can't act against his instincts, right? So it's really about looking for teachable moments during the day to just reflect out loud with your children about what makes us different from other animals, all right? Why? Because the more they appreciate how they're different from the beasts, they'll understand their human dignity, all right? They'll understand their worth, all right? That we have, we have dignity by design, all right? We are a privileged species much better than all the other animals on Earth, all right? We have free will, we have rationality, and it's important to convey to them that nothing they do can take that away. No matter how many bad mistakes they make or whatever happens to them in life, that dignity of being a human being, you can't erase that, okay? You're grounding them in their immense dignity as a human, and that will give our children a very firm ground to face modernity, okay? And by the way, if a kid really understands how they're different from the beasts, they're not gonna be tempted to identify as a furry or as a cat, right? <laughs> so that's the first level, okay? Sexual identity. All right, 
male and female, when they're very young, you mainly focus on the bodily, okay, the material aspects of our sexuality. But as they get older, you have to then enter into more of the psychological and the spiritual aspect because we're not just matter. Our femininity and our masculinity is also spiritual and it manifests itself spiritually too. And all of us really have to grow in knowledge about our masculinity or our femininity as we grow, all right? So I'm gonna get into this a little bit more, um, but it's just really important for them to understand. Now, when they're very little, what we say at Canavox is look for opportunities to just help them reflect upon sexuality in mammals, okay? So barnyard biology, okay? You go to the farm, all right, and you say to them, okay, you see the cow over there? You see that, that pink thing that looks like a balloon under it? Those are the udders, right? And that's how the mommy cow gives perfect milk to her calves, all right? And you see over there, that, that bull with the big horns, that is a male, all right? And then when they're a little bit older, when they're nine or 10, you can say, do you know how baby cows are made? And they'll be like, no, how are they made? And like, well, the bull has a penis, okay? Can you see it over there? And you point it out to them. And you say to them, he has seed in his body. And he has a way of inserting that seed into the cow. And she's gonna then have a little calf inside of her womb, and then she gives birth to it, okay? You start speaking clearly to your children from a very young age. This way, your nine-year-old does not have to visualize mature human genitalia to understand the lesson about reproduction, okay? And then when they get older and you start talking to them about human reproduction, they're like, oh yeah, just like the cows, right? You already, you're having layered conversations that build on one another, all right? Just like the cows, all right? So that's how you start when they're young. Um, but of course, as they get into their teenage years, it's a much more of a psychological thing, all right? And we'll talk about that a little bit more and hopefully more in the Q&A. Okay, um, family identity. All right, each of us has an ancestral line, okay? Your genetics came back from a long chain that goes all the way back to the beginning of humanity, all right? And it's vitally important for kids to understand their ancestry, all right? So all the stories you tell them about how your great-grandfather came to this country and the hardships that he underwent. He, he fled the Spanish Civil War and went to Cuba, and from Cuba he jumped over to the Yucatan Peninsula, and then he went here. All those stories, the family recipes, the traditions, all of these things actually leave a deep imprint on your children so that they understand that they are where they are in this wide geographical world, where they came from, it grounds them, all right? Um, yeah, so, you know, Ancestry.com is making a fortune helping people understand these, their, their familial identity, right? Um, you know, psychologists today have now, now that unfortunately we are studying the effects of anonymous sperm donation, anonymous egg donation, surrogacy, all of the reproductive techniques and their effects on children, unfortunately now psychologists are discovering this cluster of symptoms they call genealogical bewilderment. So unfortunately now we have stories of kids who have no idea who their ancestors are. They don't know who their father is. They don't know if at a gathering like this there's like 30 half siblings maybe in the crowd. And it leads many of them to undergo, you know, some pretty serious genealogical bewilderment problems, okay? 
So now we see very clearly, unfortunately, from studies like this, that it's very important for us to ground our children in their sense of family identity. So, you know, it might be a chore sometimes, you know, to get your mother-in-law over and to have her engage with the kids, but it's so vitally important for your children to understand. So surround them with aunts and uncles and extended family. This is just yet another anchor that will help to keep them grounded, especially when the hard times come, right? God forbid there's a disruption in their immediate family. Extended family can help anchor them in their sense of identity and stability, all right? It's just another layer. Okay, religious identity. So our value, the values that our religious faiths impart to us leave a deep imprint on who we are, right? Are you Jewish? Are you Catholic? Are you Muslim? What, maybe one of the other major world religions. Religion has, for thousands of years, been the way in which people find meaning and purpose and identity in their lives, okay? So unfortunately, as I said before, the retreat from Christianity is leaving a lot of people in existential crises, right? So as many of you already know, now a quarter of Americans identify as nuns, meaning they don't have any particular religious affiliation anymore. And unfortunately, of that number, millennials and the younger Americans are the highest among them. And their attendance at religious services is at an all-time low, okay? So these are all very worrying things because when a, when a child, when a teenager, when a young adult is engaging in regular reflection upon meaning of life, the meaning of suffering, all of those things help ground them, okay? So all the efforts that you make to usher your kids through baptism, first communions, ba mitzvahs, all those religious milestones are giving your children, your adolescents, deeper and deeper senses of identity, their identity vis-a-vis -vis God, right? And even if you're... Your kid, your, your child, your student, your teenager, eventually, grad, you know, maybe they leave their faith, okay? Maybe they convert to another religion. Even if that happens, you are equipping them from a young age to think about the big questions and think about what answers one of the major world religions provides. And those kinds of tools and deep critical thinking about those big questions are going to serve them for a lifetime, all right? So it's always a plus. I would say no matter what religion they're exposed to, it's always a plus for their identity, at least the five major world religions. Okay, relational identity. Um, so many of us choose to marry when we grow up, and the commitments that we make as adults leave an important mark on our identity. Other people choose spiritual motherhood or spiritual fatherhood. And those are also wonderful ways to live a kind of relational identity. So as your kids are growing up, look for opportunities to speak explicitly about these things. Maybe at the family dinner table. Say, you know, Uncle Joe, you know, he's not married, but look at what he's doing. He's doing so many wonderful things and how he gives of himself to his students. Or point out different people. Make explicit what is implicit, right? We have to say out loud things that we just take for granted because they're not obvious to our kids, right? Please expose them to stories about many wonderful life paths and relational commitments because our kids are going to be asking themselves these questions personally and it's good for us to expose them. Read them stories about you know, 
people who weren't married, right? So Louisa May Alcott or Susan B. Anthony or the Wright brothers or Nikola Tesla, tell them and point out not only their professional achievements, but their relationship achievements, right? We have to expose them to a wide range of relational life paths so that they see that they have choices. And finally, professional identity, all right? Or our occupational identity. So all of us have a particular role we play in society, and that also marks us, right? Some of us will identify, will say, I'm a homemaker, right? You introduce yourself, I'm a chef. This is what I do, and that is also a source of identity for you as an adult. For our children, of course, they're too young to have a professional identity, but their involvement at school and their hobbies often serve as sort of pre-professional sources of identity. I can tell you that my teenagers, they cling to their hobby as their identity. My son, he's a soccer player, and he only dresses with Adidas on, and he hangs out with his soccer buddies, and I can tell it is very much his source of identity, right? And my daughters, my five daughters, they each need their own personal hobby so that they can be different from the other sister, okay? I think as parents, sometimes we don't think about how important their hobbies are for their source of identity, really. And you're really training them to start thinking about what special, unique talents they have. So do invest time to be the kind of talent agent scout for your kids. and. Try to figure out what talents they have and encourage them in their hobbies because these also serve as very grounding things, especially the friendships they form around these hobbies, okay? What you're doing is you're trying to envelop your child in many different sources of identity, healthy sources of identity, so that they're protected from false forms of identity. Good, so this is sort of the model in a nutshell. Okay, now I don't expect you to go home and sit down necessarily with your kids and pull out a graph and do all this, okay? This is mainly for you, the parents, to have in mind, to keep in the back of your mind, really the breadth of your job, right? The many different ways in which you can help your kids have healthy identity. But if you're like me, and you're a little more analytic and nerdy and you want to sit down with your kids and do this, you certainly can. And I printed out a couple of worksheets, you know, if you want to do the exercise. I'll tell you that I, I, I was working on this presentation and my eight-year-old Elena looked over my shoulder and she saw the picture. She's like, what's that, mom? I was like, oh, perfect opportunity to test out my, my theory. So I was like, Elena, so this is the identity cake. And I told her about the six levels of identity, you know, and I told her, and we walked through it and she, I was like, you're a human, right? And I, reviewed with her what makes us different from the animals. And I was like, and you're a girl, right? You have girl parts, and you have girl cells. And yeah, and you're a Samuel, right? You're part of this family. And you're a Christian. And then she said she hopes to marry and have kids, you know? And she wants to be a photographer, right? So we were having this conversation. And then she was like, and mommy, what do the icing and the sprinkles mean? And I was like, the icing and the sprinkles? mean they symbolize that we have to decorate ourselves in a way that reflects who we are on the inside. She was like, oh, you mean how we dress? I was like, yes, how we dress. It's like, woo, right? So you never know what will happen once you start these dialogues with your children, right? 
but they really are capable of a lot of like philosophizing about these things. So if you think they can handle it, I would say go for it. Okay, so let me just point out a couple of things about this view of identity, right? When you hear about identity today, most often it's in terms of race or ethnicity or sex or gender, sexuality, all right? Think about what a fractured and oversimplified way that is to think about human identity, right? It's like they took the cake and they smashed it on the floor and they said, okay, this is your identity and this little piece over here is your identity. And by the way, if you belong to this race or ethnic group, or if you're this sexuality, sorry to tell you, you're part of an oppressed group, and the other group is the one that's gonna be victimizing you, but don't worry, there are a lot of other people that are with us, and we're working to change the system, so it's gonna be okay. So that rhetoric fractures our society, it polarizes us, nobody wins with that rhetoric, right? It provides kids with an anemic a very undernourished sense of identity. And it really, it doesn't give them the breadth of agency, right? So just, just think about how different modern identity politics is from the great tradition of thinking about our identity, right? The second thing I'd like to point out is our role of, what's the role of freedom? How much freedom of choice do we have in our identity, all right? So the first three layers, the human, the sexual, the familial, we really don't get to choose that, right? It's given to us. These aspects of our identity are largely a result of our parents' choices, right? You don't get to choose what species you are or what gender or sex you are, and you don't get to choose what family you're born into, okay? You can engage your human freedom in understanding it and loving it and accepting it so that you're comfortable with who you are, but you don't get to choose those things. However, the last three layers, we do get to choose. You do have a say in what kinds of worldview or religious identity you have. You do get to choose your relational commitments as an adult, and you also get to choose your occupation or your profession, right? So what this says to me is that we are all an unfinished project, right? So contrary to modern identity politics that presents identity like a born-again moment, like, oh, I've come out as gay, this is my born again moment and it's done. I mean, I, that is my identity, right? This presents us with a lifelong project where we are building out what our identity is and we're responsible for it and how it turns out, right? And finally, I'd like to point out the role of names, okay? The role of names in every single level of our identity because names have in the history of linguistics and philosophy played a very important role in conveying truth, okay? So I'm just gonna use my name as an example, okay? So our first name usually reflects our humanity and our sexuality, okay? You look at this name, you look at my first name on paper without meeting me, you will probably know that this is a human female, all right? Now I know a lot of celebrities like to name their kids other things like Gwyneth Paltrow named her daughter Apple, and Kanye West named his son North. Okay, you know, it happens. I mean, if you want to name your child Gravity, fine. There's, no, there's nothing morally wrong with that, okay? But I think it's a lost opportunity. It's a lost opportunity to imprint your child with a name that helps them understand their great dignity and their great just 
beauty, right? It's a gentle reminder. Those three letters say so much, right, about who I already am. Our last name, this is my maiden last name, right? Our last name usually reflects our ancestry, our ancestral identity, all right? And it often tells us our ethnicity too, right? You can probably guess that this is a Latin American or a Spanish name. And you can look at a lot of last names and sort of guess the familial identity, whether it's Irish or Russian or African name, right? Notice also that the last name is gender neutral, okay? Our last names do not have a gender, right? Why? Because families should include both men and women, okay? So whereas the first names traditionally are gendered, last names are not, okay? Our religious identity, our names often reflect our religious identity, right? If you're Muslim, you might have the name Muhammad, right? Jews typically have Old Testament names, right? I remember the day that I asked my father, why did you name me Judith? You know, there, there's nobody in our family named Judith. I was probably like nine years old. And he took out the Bible and he opened it to the Old Testament. And I remember the picture. It was one of those line drawings. This is the Caravaggio ver version, okay? <laughs> and he told me out the story of Judith and how she infiltrated the Nebuchadnezzar's army with her beauty and her, and her smarts. And she slayed Holofernes while he was drunk in his sleep. Like, wow, I love my name, you know? It was like, she was like a Marvel character, you know? It was like the great Avenger, Judith. I just, it just gave me this sense of like, Oh my gosh, it just ennobled me immensely to hear what this name represented, right? So don't miss the opportunity to give your kid a great name and then tell them the story. And maybe you, you pick the name because you just like the sound of it. Invent a story. Invent a story about why this name is so wonderful. Because that's just yet another way in which you're helping your kid have a sense of really noble and wonderful identity, all right? Okay, and then relational identity. Many of us get married, and if you're a woman, you'll, your name also changes often. I took my husband's last name, and I turned into a Mrs., all right? Again, and I personally think that when men get married, their last names should change, too. We should have, like, a dash, and it should be this. He should also take our name, don't you think, ladies? Yeah, I mean, that's another fight for another day. But, um, but just to reflect the one flesh union, you know, that's what I'm thinking. But, um, but yes, but once the relational identity is usually, at least for women, also reflected in the name. And then, with your professional identity, sometimes, not always, you might take on some more letters by your name. So you're Mr. Smith, CEO, or Esquire, whatever. It's common to have additional letters, right? Or identifying, you know, by your profession. Okay, so. In light of all of that, you can probably imagine what my stance is on transgender pronouns and names, okay? Don't, don't budge on the pronouns because names, names convey a lot, all right? Names are immensely important in revealing who we are to others. Names are a deeply social symbol, all right? When you give your name and you give your several names, you're revealing yourself to another person. And if you start to muddy those waters, it becomes an antisocial, very antisocial, if not irrational endeavor. But I hear people say to me, but who can't, okay, pronouns, fine. But what about the first name? You know, like, first name, can't we compromise on the first name, okay? And what I say to them is categorical imperative, okay? So what I think when people ask me about this is Kant's categorical imperative, which says, 
act according to the maxim whereby you can at the same time will that your action should become a universal law, okay? So what does that mean? If you're okay calling Bruce Jenner Caitlin, are you okay with all first names being gender neutral and or fluid from now on, okay? So let's just change the scenario a little bit. Let's say it's not Bruce wanting to be Caitlin. Let's say it's a young man who wants to go by Mary or a young woman who wants to go by Jesus or Muhammad or she wants to be called Moses or a guy wants to be called Judith, all right? Why does our internal alarm go off? Why? Because first names, when they are gendered, they convey a very important truth about the human person. I personally do not want to live in a world where first names mean nothing. They have no gender. We, it becomes a deeply antisocial enterprise, okay? Anti-life enterprise, honestly, all right? So that's why I don't budge. So if your kids come up to you and say, or your adolescents come and say, okay, the kid that was last year, James, wants to go by Jenny now, what do I do? Okay, so here are my tips. This is what I say to my kids, but again, this is a prudential decision, so this isn't set in stone. This is just what I say to my children. Okay, first of all, I say, okay, third person pronouns are just that, third person pronouns, okay? In most face-to-face -face conversations, you don't need to use a third person pronoun. You can just say you, okay? So how's it going? How was your evening? Is that your backpack? Okay, the third person pronoun thing only kicks into play when you're not, you're talking about that person, okay? So a lot of this drama I think is overblown, okay? So that's the first thing I say to them. And then if you do have to have a conversation about the name, I say, well, ask them if you can call them by their last name, you know? Their last name is gender neutral. You say, do you mind if I call you Smith? I know it's deeply upsetting to you to be called your birth, the, the name assigned to you at birth. I won't call you that. Could I call you by your last name? Or do you think we could agree on a nickname? Maybe there's a nickname. I can't call you Allison, but I could call you Al. Or can we come up with another mutually agreeable nickname? All right? That strategy has worked for my two high school students and my middle school kid who's had to face these issues. All right. They've actually had quite wonderful conversations. Most kids who are questioning their gender are not like the activists. They're not like the activists that are blaring mad and gonna go down their throat. Most kids who are gender, questioning their gender or confused or distressed, if you actually engage in dialogue with them, my kids, have, my, my students, have, my kids have discovered that they really don't have a problem coming up with a nickname that they both agree on. So that's, that's my take. So that's the end of my rant on the names, okay? Now let me just say a couple of things, two last things, two last tips about sexual, the sexual identity issue, um, just guiding them, all right? So <laughs> remind them, okay, that their sexual identity is determined by their awesome bodies, okay? Let me just read you. One of our state leaders in Australia shared this story with us about how she did this with her kids. Here's Leanne. She leads some groups in Australia. Okay, so this is verbatim what she, what she wrote to me. Um, this is how she turned one of her how's your day conversations at dinner into a solid lesson in biology and natural law. One day my nine-year-old told me that she had a new classmate, a boy who wore his long blonde hair in a ponytail, which she thought made him look like a girl. 
Now, if this conversation had taken place before my involvement in Canavox, I might have said, sure, boys can have long hair. And that would have been the end of that topic. However, now as a Canavox parent, I saw that this was an important teachable moment, especially because the younger siblings, ages six and four, were also at the table. So I said to the nine-year-old, sometimes it can be hard to tell if someone's a boy or a girl just from their looks, isn't it? In fact, what makes somebody a boy or a girl? And my nine-year-old responded with something we had recently discussed. Their private parts are different. And we reviewed briefly about how a boy has a penis and a girl has a vulva and a womb. And then I decided the kids were ready for more knowledge. And did you know that it's not just the private parts that make us a boy or a girl? The kids became very interested, so I continued. It's our DNA. Do you know what DNA is? Yes, yes, my nine-year-old called out. It's in your cells. That's right, I said. DNA is even smaller than in your cells. It's in every little part of you, not just your private parts. There is something in your DNA called chromosomes, which shows if someone is male or female. A boy's body and a girl's body are completely different because they have different chromosomes. So it's not just the private parts, it's everything, the older two children said. That's right, I said. So that's why boys and girls don't just have different private parts. They have different bones, muscles, brains, and when they grow up, their bodies develop very differently too. So they talked, we talked about this a while, and then at the end I said, so does being a boy or a girl depend on how long your hair is, or what clothes you wear, or what things you want to play with? No, they all answered loudly, even the four-year-old who had been mostly listening. Right, I said, what smart kids you are, okay? So that's the kind of thing you do at home. Just look for the little teachable moments and just dive in, right, with total confidence, all right? Fearless. Okay, last point, emphasize female diversity and male diversity. So as your children, your adolescents enter into adolescence, right, as they get older, it becomes less about different bodies and more about the psychological, about the behavioral, right? And being as self-conscious as they are, they start to compare themselves to what their personality is like compared to other boys or what their behaviors are like compared to the other little girls. And some of them, especially the students that have anxiety or are prone to depressive symptoms or have other things going on at home that might have destabilized them, those children can be particularly prone to questioning their gender, all right? So I think it's really helpful to emphasize the, the diversity of being male or female. Here is a nifty graph that researchers William Malone, Colin Wright, and Julia Robertson created. And in this graph, they took, what they did is they took all, they took many, many studies, meta-studies of behavioral differences between men and women, all right? And what they found is that a lot of kind of fairly well-known stereotypes are true, okay? So on average, females are more sensitive, sentimental, intuitive, aesthetically oriented, tender-minded, but also more emotionally unstable and anxious than males, all right? This is just a social science, all right? And then on average, males tend to be more assertive, unsentimental, objective, utilitarian, less anxious, and more tough-minded than females. But notice that it's a bell curve, okay? It's a bell curve. The distribution is a bell curve, okay? So 
You see these little dots right here, okay? So this male right here will be more female-like than most males and, and the majority of females. So if you draw like an invisible line from that dot up, this male is more feminine in personality trait than the majority of women, okay? And the same on the other side. This, this little female, all right, if you draw a straight line up, she's more masculine in personality types than the majority of men, okay? So really, most people are sort of here, all right, from in, in the mean. And they're only extremes. There's a minority at the extremes. Why do I think this is important for adolescents to know, okay? Because some boys, you know, will feel just they're not going to feel so macho compared to what they perceive. They might have a heightened sense of what being masculine is. It's the athletes. It's the jocks. It's that group. I, I'm, I'm just not that way. Or some girls may not feel as feminine as the popular girl. And they can start to get too in their heads and get complicated and just feel like they don't belong. And if you as a parent can get ahead of that and say, you know what, there are so many wonderful ways to be male or female, all right? And it's not something to be alarmed by and point out examples of people in your life and bring it out, okay? One of our Canavox mothers shared that at a young age, you know, her son started, she has five kids, um, two daughters, three sons, and one of the sons was just not like the others. He wasn't very athletic. He was much more sensitive temperamentally. He liked art. He was easily offended. He couldn't, he just was having a hard time making friends. And he loved to dress up. And one day she found him, he was like 10. He was putting on his sister's costume box, the princess dresses. And she was like, you know, she stayed calm, but she noticed it. And he just loved to walk around the house. She didn't pounce on him. You know, she didn't pounce on him, but she went on Amazon and she ordered him a long Aladdin costume with a long robe with lots of glitter on it, okay? But it was a boy's costume. And she got him, you know, Star Wars, long costumes, right? And she said, look, and she got him a costume box. She said, this is going to be your costume box. And she filled it with boys' costumes. And they were glittery and feathers and all that, but it was, they were boy costumes, okay? I think this was a very wise thing, okay? Because at that age, children can become easily confused. So she wasn't squashing it. She was just a little nudge, just a little nudge to help him remember and help reinforce the masculinity while encouraging him in his uniqueness, all right? So this is the kind of creative outside-the-box thinking. And she also talked to her husband. and said, you've got to reach out more to this son because they, they were totally different. The dad was very much of a hunter and all, was not really connecting with that son. And she really was like, you, you've got to step up. You know, he's not going to be like the other boys, but I need you. And now the boy's in karate, and all of these things are helping him, right? And they found a friend group for him that's like him because same-sex friendships with other boys who are similar, very important for a child's social sexual development, okay? So you just have to sort of stay ahead of these things, all right? So let me end there, and, um, and um, I'd, let me just uh, say that I've only scratched the surface, right? I've only scratched the surface, and... I really hope this is just like a little trailer, a little teaser. Because at Canavox, we really, we think that flying in a speaker or bringing in a speaker is not as effective, really. This is, you haven't done enough, really. If you really care about these ideas, you've got to go home and study. 
and you've got to talk about these things with friends and peers. Ideally, in a Canebox reading group, we make it easy for you to make the time because to the extent that you really, month after month, study and take these ideas in, then you're going to be able to give these speeches and you're going to be able to lead your peers and that's what we really need for our society to become transformed. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from Oakcrest School. To subscribe to our podcast channel, visit oakcrest.org.